Captain Joseph Borelli of the New York City Police Department was one of the key members of the Omega Group. Operation Omega was the task force headed by Deputy Inspector Timothy Dowd to find the psycho who was killing women in various parts of the city with a 44 caliber handgun. The 44 caliber killer was getting a great deal of press and Borelli's name had appeared frequently. Now, on April 17, 1977, he was looking at a letter addressed to him that had been left for him at the scene of the latest in a series of murders. With misspellings, it read, Dear Captain Joseph Borelli, I am deeply hurt by your calling me a woman-hater. I am not, but I am a monster. I am the son of Sam. I am a little brat. When Father Sam gets drunk, he gets mean. He beats his family. Sometimes he ties me up to the back of the house. Other times he locks me in the garage. Sam loves to drink blood. Go out and kill, commands Father Sam. Behind our house some rest, mostly young, raped and slaughtered, their blood drained, just bones now. Papa Sam keeps me locked in the attic, too. I can't get out, but I look out the attic window and watch the world go by. I feel like an outsider. I am on a different wavelength than everybody else, programmed to kill. However, to stop me, you must kill me. Attention, all police. Shoot me first. Shoot to kill, or else keep out of my way, or you will die. Papa Sam is old now. He needs some blood to preserve his youth. He has had too many heart attacks. Ugh! Me hoot, it hurts, sonny boy. I miss my pretty princess most of all. She's resting in Our Lady's house, but I'll see her soon. I am the monster, Belzebub, the chubby behemoth. I love to hunt, prowling the streets looking for fair game, tasty meat. The women of Queens are prettiest of all. It must be the water they drink. I live for the hunt, my life, blood for Papa. Mr. Borelli, sir, I don't want to kill any more. No, sir, no more but I must honor thy father. I want to make love to the world. I love people. I don't belong on earth. Return me to Yahoo's. To the people of Queens, I love you. And I want to wish all of you a happy Easter. May God bless you in this life and in the next. The letter did not have any useful fingerprints, and the envelope had been handled by so many people that if there were any of the murderer's prints, they were lost. This letter was leaked to the press in early June, and the world finally heard the name, Son of Sam. One week before the latest Son of Sam murder, a retired city worker named Sam Carr, who lived in Yonkers, New York, with his wife and children, received an anonymous letter about his black Labrador, Harvey. The writer was complaining about Harvey's barking. On April 19th, two days after the latest murder, Another letter in the same handwriting came in the mail. I have asked you kindly to stop that dog from howling all day long, yet he continues to do so. I pleaded with you. I told you how this is destroying my family. We have no peace, no rest. Now I know what kind of a person you are and what kind of a family you are. You are cruel and inconsiderate. 
You have no love for any other human being. You're selfish, Mr. Carr. My life is destroyed now. I have nothing to lose any more. I can see that there shall be no peace in my life or my family's life until I end yours. Carr and his wife called the police, but all they did was listen sympathetically. Ten days later, Carr heard a gunshot coming from his backyard where he discovered the black Labrador bleeding on the ground. A man wearing jeans and a yellow shirt was bounding away. He rushed Harvey to the veterinarian where he was saved. Carr phoned the police again. This time, patrolman Peter Intervallo and Thomas Chamberlain examined the letters and began an investigation. At this time, the son of Sam's letter to Captain Borelli had not been leaked to the newspapers, so no one thought to connect these letters to the Borelli letter. Operation Omega was growing in size and resources. It had expanded to some 200 detectives. With the city amid panic, being assigned to the Omega Task Force was considered an honor. Catching the perpetrator of six murderous assaults would mean tremendous awards for the detectives involved, and they knew it. It was an extra incentive to put in long hours to catch this nut. Such long hours, however, brought frayed nerves. Detectives were at each other's throats over trivialities. Relationships with wives and children were severely strained. Caffeine and alcohol consumption increased. Cots were put in the Omega headquarters station so that the officers could grab at least a few hours of sleep before they started again. Several very talented players joined Operation Omega. In addition to Captain Joe Borelli, there was Sergeant Joseph Coffey and Detective Redmond Keenan. Keenan's daughter Rosemary was present at one of these assaults when her date was seriously injured. All in all, Operation Omega comprised the cream of New York City detectives with a strong sense of mission. When Son of Sam first struck on the morning of July 29, 1976, no one could expect that a serial killer was making his debut. Two young women, Donna Loria, an 18-year-old brunette, and her 19-year-old friend Jody Valenti, were talking in Jody's car near the entrance of Loria's apartment building in the Bronx, New York City. Because of the dangerous hour, one o'clock in the morning, her parents stopped by the car on their way home from an evening out and told her it was time to come upstairs. Donna promised she would, but after her parents went inside, Donna noticed a man standing alongside the passenger side of the car. Who is this guy? She asked. What does he want? Her question went unanswered. The man pulled out a Charter Arms 44 Bulldog handgun from a paper bag, squatted down, and fired into the car five times. Donna died immediately, hit in the neck. Jody, shot in the thigh, leaned on the horn while the man continued to pull the trigger, even though the chamber was now empty. Jody scrambled from the car, screaming for help. Soon, Donna's father heard the noise and ran down. In his pajamas and bare feet, he raced his car to the hospital, hoping that doctors could save his Donna. Police could find no motive for the attack. Finally, they theorized that it may have been either a mob execution with mistaken victims or a lone psycho. Jody, semi-shocked, did manage to give something of a description of the assailant, but under duress, her description lacked. On the night of October 23, 1976, three months after the Loria girl's senseless murder, 20-year-old Carl De Niro drank beer with his friends at a bar in Queens. 
In a few days, he would be entering the Air Force for at least four years. He really wanted to live it up with his buddies, since it would be a while before he saw them all again. Among his party was a girl, Rosemary Keenan, whom he knew from college. The party broke up after 2.30 a.m., and Carl drove Rosemary home. The couple parked near her home and talked. Suddenly, a man appeared outside the passenger's side. He drew a gun and fired five times into the car, wounding Carl in the head. Terrified, Rosemary drove the car back to the bar from where friends rushed Carl to the hospital. There, surgeons replaced a part of his damaged skull with a metal plate. His injuries would haunt him for the rest of his life. A little more than a month later, on the evening of November 26, 1976, 16-year-old Donna DeMacy and her 18-year-old friend Joanne Lamino were coming home from a movie late at night. The bus stopped close to Joanne's home. Joanne noticed a man standing nearby. She urged her friend to walk faster. He began following them. Do you know where? He addressed them as though he was about to ask directions, but he never finished his sentence. Instead, he pulled a gun from beneath his jacket and fired at them. Both girls were hit. Then their assailant emptied his gun by firing at a house. Hearing the girls' screams, Joanne's family rushed from the house to help the girls. When they reached the hospital, surgeons determined that Donna would be okay. The bullet had passed within a quarter inch of her spine and exited her body. Joanne was not so lucky. Her spine had been shattered by the bullet. She would live, but was now a paraplegic. Of these three assaults, which had occurred in two different areas, the Bronx and Queens, only one bullet had been recovered intact. Consequently, police were not yet able to link these attacks to a single individual. Things quieted for two months. Then, in the early hours of January 30th, 1977, the killer went hunting for his next victim. 26-year-old Christine Friund and her fiancé, John Diel, left the wine gallery in Queens around 12.10 a.m. and strolled towards his car. They were too absorbed in each other to observe that man who had been watching them. As they sat in the car, two shots broke the night, shattering the windshield. Christine grabbed her head. Both shots had struck her. John rested her head on the driver's seat and ran for help, trying to flag down passing cars, but to no avail. People in nearby homes had heard the shots and had called the police. A few hours later, Christine died in hospital. 43-year-old Detective Sergeant Joe Coffey was a big, handsome Irishman known for his toughness and dedication. He and Captain Joe Borelli started to work on this latest homicide. They had two theories, that the killer was either a psycho or someone who had something personal against Christine Freund. Coffey could see that the bullets used to kill her were not typical. They had come from a powerful, large-caliber gun. Investigating further, he discovered that her murder matched those other assaults on Donna Loria, Donna DeMacy, and Joanne Lamino. Coffey had a hunch that they were dealing with one psycho packing a 44, stalking women in various parts of the city. As his investigation began to bear fruit, a homicide task force was formed under Captain Borelli. Ballistics reported that the weapon employed was a 44 Charter Arms Bulldog, an unusual weapon. After probing into the backgrounds of the murders and their victims, police were unable to find any suspect on record. 
nor could they find any common thread that linked the victims to one another or a third party. It was beginning to look as though a psycho had randomly targeted attractive young women for assassination. On the evening of Tuesday, March 8, 1977, an attractive young Bernard College honors student named Virginia Voskarichian was walking home from classes in the affluent Forest Hills Garden area. Virginia was a very talented and hardworking young woman who had fled Bulgaria with her family in the late 1950s. As she followed Dartmouth Street towards her home, a man approached her from the opposite direction. When they were very close, he pulled out a 44 and aimed it at her. She raised her books to protect herself, but a single shot hit her in the face. Virginia died immediately. As the killer ran away, he passed a man who had witnessed the whole thing. Hi, mister, the killer said to the middle-aged man. A passing patrol car spotted the running man. But when they heard on their radio that a woman had been shot on Dartmouth Street, they abandoned their plan to stop the suspicious man and immediately raced to the crime scene. The police felt helpless, unable to find the murderer. As well, these murders were taking a huge toll on the officers who had been working non-stop to track down every possible lead. Lawrence D. Klausner, in his book Son of Sam, quotes Joe Borelli on the aftermath of this crime. If you watch detectives at any homicide, you'll notice that they go about their jobs unemotionally. They didn't want to look at her. They knew it was senseless. She was someone beautiful, and she was lying under the sheet. A bullet in her face had destroyed her. It began to grab at them, in their guts, and they just turned away. These were veterans, and they couldn't take it. The next day, the police had a match on the bullet. It had come from the same gun that had killed Donna Loria. They were looking for a psycho, and they knew he was going to kill again. Some random shooting of an attractive young woman. How could they ever prevent it? The following day, the police commissioner held a press conference to announce to the city of New York that they had linked the various shootings. The commissioner stated that the only description of the murderer was that of a white male, 25 to 30 years old, six feet tall, medium build, with dark hair. More emphasis was put on finding this psycho before he killed again. Deputy Inspector Timothy Dowd had given the job of organizing the Operation Omega Task Force and staffing it with the highly experienced men it needed. Dowd, a native of Ireland, was not a typical cop. The 61-year-old veteran had majored in Latin and English at City College and had studied for a master's degree in business at the Baruch School of City College. Pragmatic and persistent despite political setbacks, he was not easily discouraged. Captain Borelli had a new boss. This crime series had become too big to be handled by just a captain. As expected, the Phantom reappeared. On April 17, 1977, two young lovers sat kissing in their parked car near the Hutchinson River Parkway, not far from where Donna Loria had been murdered the previous year. 18-year-old Valentina Suriani, an aspiring actress and model, sat in the car with her 20-year-old boyfriend, Alexander Esau, a tow truck operator. At 3 a.m. that Sunday, another car pulled up alongside them. Its driver shot each of them twice. Valentina died immediately, and Alexander a bit later at the hospital. This was just what the police department had been fearing, the next inevitable attack in the series of the 44 caliber murders. The psycho who would keep on killing 
until he could be found among the millions of men who fit his description. But this time there was something different. The killer's letter left at the scene of the murders addressed to Captain Borelli, the letter in which the killer gave the police his name, the Son of Sam. New York City Mayor Abraham Beam called what he saw as a much-needed press conference to discuss the Son of Sam case. It was the kind of name that the press would grab onto and create a media persona. Beam dreaded the whole thing. The killings were a horror. The police were under terrible strain. Everyone was beginning to question his ability to capture the gunman. The letter fused everything together. It was a man against the entire city. He had written this one policeman, but I knew it wasn't that captain he was writing about. It was every cop who was after him. All 25,000 of them. Dr. Martin Lubin, former head of forensic psychiatry at Bellevue, along with some 45 other psychiatrists, convened to contribute to the psychological profile of the man they were seeking. In May of 1977, the police knew that they were looking for a paranoid schizophrenic who may have considered himself possessed of demonic power. The killer was almost certainly a loner who had difficulty with relationships, particularly relationships with women. The Omega Task Force was flooded with calls. Everyone, it seemed, knew the killer. He was the neighbor who came home late every night, the odd brother-in-law who played with guns all the time, the weird guy in the bar who hated pretty girls. The list of suspects was endless. Every one of these thousands of leads had to be checked out and disqualified, a huge chore for any task force. When the police were chasing down every suspect, checking registrations for 44 weapons, tracing activities of former mental patients, and generally running themselves ragged, the son of Sam had become emboldened by the publicity. He decided to write to Jimmy Breslin, a reporter for the Daily News. Hello from the cracks in the sidewalk of NYC, and from the ants that dwell in these cracks and feed in the dried blood of the dead that has settled into the cracks. Hello from the gutters of NYC, which is filled with dog manure, vomit, stale wine, urine, and blood. Hello from the sewers of NYC, which swallow up these delicacies when they are washed away by the sweeper trucks. Don't think because you haven't heard from me for a while that I went to sleep. No, rather, I'm still here, like a spirit roaming in the night, thirsty, hungry, seldom stopping for rest, anxious to please Sam. Sam's a thirsty lad. He won't let me stop killing until he gets his fill of blood. Tell me, Jim, what will you have for July 29th? You can forget about me if you like, because I don't care about publicity. However, you must not forget Donna Loria, and you cannot let the people forget her either. She was a very sweet girl. Not knowing what the future holds, I shall say farewell, and I will see you at the next job? Or should I say you will see my handiwork at the next job? Remember Ms. Loria. Thank you. In their blood and from the gutter. Sam's Creation, 44. The Daily News withheld some portions of the letter at the insistence of the police. The omitted passage read, Here are some names to help you along. Forward them to the inspector for use by the NCIC, the National Crime Information Center. They have everything on the computer. Everything.
they just might turn up for some other crimes. Maybe they could make associations. Duke of Death, Wicked King Wicker, the 22 Disciples of Hell, and lastly, John Wheaties, Rapist and Suffocator of Young Girls. P.S. Drive on, think positive, get off your butts, knock on coffins, etc. Partial fingerprints were salvaged from the letter, which was of no value in finding the suspect, but would be valuable to match against a suspect once captured. On June 10th, a man named Jack Cassara, who lived in New Rochelle, found an odd get-well note in his mailbox from someone named Carr in Yonkers. The card included a picture of a German Shepherd dog. It read, Dear Jack, I'm sorry to hear about that fall you took from the roof of your house. Just want to say, I'm sorry, but I'm sure it won't be long until you feel much better, healthy, well, and strong. Please be careful next time. Since you're going to be confined for a long time, let us know if Nan needs anything. Sincerely, Sam and Francis. Cassara had not fallen off his roof, nor had he ever met Sam and Francis Carr. He called them up and, discussing the odd situation, they agreed to meet at the Carr's home that evening. The Carr's told the Cassaras about the strange letters they had received about their dog Harvey and how Harvey had been shot. Sam Carr told them about a German shepherd in the neighborhood that had also been shot. Carr had his daughter, Wheat, a dispatcher for the Yonkers police, bring in officers Intervallo and Chamberlain to investigate, while Cassara had contacted New Rochelle police. Later, Cassara's 19-year-old son Stephen drew an interesting conclusion. He remembered the odd guy, David Berkowitz, who had briefly rented a room in their house in early 1976. He never came back for his $200 security deposit when he left. Well, he was always bothered by our dog, too. Nan Cassara, Jack's wife, called the cars, who promised that their daughter would have the Yonkers police act on that information. She also called the New Rochelle police, who waited some two months later to call her back. When they did contact her, she was sure that Berkowitz was the son of Sam. The detective mentioned that Craig Glassman, a deputy sheriff and neighbor of Berkowitz, had received an anonymous letter talking about a demon group composed of Glassman, the Casaras, and the Cars. All that proved, however, was that Berkowitz was a little strange, but not a killer, and not the son of Sam. Police are often confronted with odd, yet perfectly legal behavior on the part of citizens, but can't do much about it. In the meantime, Chamberlain and Intervallo of the Yonkers police put Berkowitz's name into their computer and learned his address, the registration number of his Ford Galaxy, and the fact that his license had just been suspended. At 3 a.m. on June 26, 1977, attractive young Judy Placido turned to Sal Lupo, the young man she was talking with, and suggested that it was time for him to take her home from the Elfas, a disco in Queens. The disco was almost empty. The son of Sam had thinned out crowds all across the city. This son of Sam is really scary, she told Sal. The way that guy comes out of nowhere, you never know where he'll hit next. Then, as if she had just predicted the future, she later recounted, All of a sudden, I heard echoing in the car. There wasn't any pain, just ringing in my ears. I looked at Sal, and his eyes were wide open, just like his mouth. There were no screams. 
I don't know why I didn't scream. All the windows had been closed. I couldn't understand what that pounding noise was. After that, I felt disoriented, dazed. Sal's first impression was that someone had thrown rocks at the car, so he ran back to the disco for help. Judy looked in the mirror and found herself covered with blood. Her right arm was immobile. She collapsed when she tried to run back to the disco. Sal had also been hit in the forearm. Both victims were very lucky. Although Judy had been shot three times, she had avoided serious injury and death. Ironically, Detective Coffey had been outside the Elfas about 15 minutes before the shooting. Once the news came over the radio, he returned to the scene in a flash, but there was nothing to learn from either Judy or Sal about the identity of the assailant. Donna Loria, son of Sam's first victim, had been murdered on July 29, 1976. Considering the son of Sam's letter that was sent to reporter Jimmy Breslin, in which she alone was prominently mentioned, police were worried about an anniversary killing. The newspapers made certain that the entire city expected another killing on or around that day. The Omega Task Force was desperate. How to protect a whole city of young women from a random killer? Detective Coffey even considered placing cops in bulletproof cars with mannequins to try to lure the killer. It was a waiting game. Tensions built steadily until July 29th, and nerves were at a breaking point all that day and night. But no son of Sam. Not that day. Two days later, when the police were beginning to feel relieved that the anniversary had passed without another murder, the son of Sam took his last victims. In the early morning of Sunday, July 31, 1977, a pretty, vivacious young woman named Stacy Moskowitz sat with her handsome young boyfriend, Bobby Violante, in his dad's car. They had gone to see a movie and had ended the evening parked in a quiet spot near Gravesend Bay. How about taking a walk in the park? he suggested. Stacy was reticent. What if the son of Sam is hiding there? This is Brooklyn, not Queens. Come on, he urged her. They got out of the car and walked to the park swings. Bobby leaned forward to kiss her, and she saw something. Someone's looking at us, she whispered. Bobby saw a man nearby, but the stranger turned away and disappeared behind the parked cars. Stacy was frightened and wanted to go back to the car. When they got to the car, Stacy wanted to leave, but Bobby persuaded her to stay for another few minutes while they kissed. All of a sudden, Bobby recalled, I heard like a humming sound. First, I thought I heard glass break. Then I didn't hear Stacy anymore. I didn't feel anything, but I saw her fall away from me. I don't know who got shot first, her or me. Bobby Violante had been shot twice in the face. Stacy had been shot once in the head. Bobby could hear her moaning. He hit the car's horn and then pulled himself from the car and cried for help. Police were on the spot in short order and Stacy and Bobby were on their way to Coney Island Hospital. Stacy's parents arrived at the hospital just in time to see her being wheeled out of the hospital. The seriousness of her wounds required her to be moved to Kings County Hospital, where the facilities for head trauma were more extensive. Together, the parents of Bobby and Stacy waited for hours as surgeons worked to save their children. 38 hours later, Stacy Moskowitz died. Bobby Violante survived, but he had lost his left eye and had only 20% vision in his right eye. 
On August 3, 1977, several days after the attack on Stacy Moskowitz and Bobby Violante, the two Yonkers cops, Chamberlain and Intervallo, talked about the bizarre letters received by the Cars and Casaras and the shooting of the two dogs, Cars Labrador and the Wicker Street shooting of a German Shepherd. They were concerned that if they started to investigate this David Berkowitz, it would look as though they were trying to do the work of detectives rather than the patrolmen that they were. They proceeded cautiously and queried the state computer network about Berkowitz. The computer gave a brief profile of him from his driver's license. Berkowitz appeared to be approximately the same age, height, and build as the son of Sam, as described by various witnesses. The patrolman talked to the rental agent at the building of 35 Pine Street, Berkowitz's place of residence. All she could tell him was that he paid his rent on time and that he wrote on his rental application that he worked at IBI Security in Queens. That sparse information indicated that Berkowitz probably had some knowledge of guns if he worked for a security company. Next, they called IBI and found out that Berkowitz quit in July of 1976 to go work for some cab company. The first son of Sam's murder was in July of 1976. Between the two of them, they called a couple of hundred cab companies based in the Bronx area. None of them employed Berkowitz. However, hundreds of other cab companies operated in the greater New York area. Calling them all seemed insurmountable. The two policemen were certain that they were onto something, however, and confided in their boss, who was impressed with the information they had collected. Here's them to talk to the New York City detective Richard Salvison. They showed Salvison all the letters. The latter was favorably impressed and agreed to pass on the information to the Omega Task Force. Another development in the case occurred a couple of days after the Moskowitz-Violante shooting. Mrs. Cecilia Davis, an attractive middle-aged Australian immigrant, reluctantly came forward with the claim that she had seen the man who shot the couple. Detective Joe Strano went to see her at her home on Bay 17th Street, a block from the scene of the shooting. Davis told Strano that she came home in the early morning hours and had to walk her dog Snowball. She thought a man was following her. He looked like he was trying to hide behind a tree, but the tree was too small, too narrow. He stood out. He kept staring in my direction. Then he began walking in my direction, smiling a peculiar smile. It wasn't anything sinister, just a friendly kind of smile. Almost. When she got a closer look at him, she thought that he had a gun concealed in his hand. I was frightened. I walked into my house and began to slip off Snowball's collar. Just then I heard pops or something that sounded like firecrackers. They were kind of loud, but far off. I didn't think too much of it at the time. The next morning, there were crowds of people at Shore Road. It was then that I learned what happened the night before. Suddenly, I realized that I must have seen the killer. I panicked, and I couldn't say anything. I would never forget his face until the day I die. It was frightening. In the meantime, things seemed to be popping all over. Officer Chamberlain of the Yonkers PD responded to a call about a suspected arson at Berkowitz's apartment house at 35 Pine Street. The call had been made by Craig Glassman, a male nurse and part-time sheriff's deputy. Glassman had been the fellow described in Berkowitz's letter as one of the group of demons, along with the Casaras and the Cars. Glassman explained what happened. I smelled the smoke and ran out to the door. When I opened it, the fire was almost out. It probably never got hot enough to set the bullets off. 
he showed Chamberlain the twenty-two caliber bullets that had been put into the fire outside his door. Then Glassman showed them the squirrely letters he had received from Berkowitz, who lived just above him. The handwriting looked identical to the letters that the cars had received. That same afternoon, Sam Carr, still upset over the shooting of his dog and what he saw as non-action by the police, independently pursued the matter with the Omega Task Force. He drove down to the police station where the task force was headquartered. Not much happened when Sam Carr related his story of the shootings of the dogs, the weird letters, the eccentric David Berkowitz. The task force had been inundated for many months with leads by people who spoke as passionately as Sam Carr. They put the information in a folder of level two priorities and forgot about it. For a little while. The fact was, despite the subsequent excuses, Sam Carr had just handed them the name of the killer, and they sat on it. Two days later, August 8th, Chamberlain and Intervallo called Detective Salvazin to tell him about the Craig Glassman incident and the letters that Glassman had received. One of the letters was amazingly confessional. True, I'm the killer, but Craig, the killings are at your command. Salvazin promised to inform the task force immediately, but the information didn't get to the task force for days. In the meantime, several traffic tickets that had been written the night of the shooting outside Witness Davis's apartment were at last found. All but one were investigated and yielded nothing. One final ticket was yet to be investigated, one belonging to a Yonkers man named David Berkowitz. Detective Jimmy Justice called the Yonkers Police Department and talked to Wheat Carr, the daughter of Sam Carr, who had lost her dog. She gave him a real earful about David Berkowitz and everything her father had tried to impress upon the police days earlier. Officer Chamberlain called Justice shortly afterward and told him everything he knew. They compared notes. Then, after the Carr family and officers, Chamberlain and Intervallo had connected all the dots repeatedly for the New York City police, and the latter was more than anxious to go in for the caller and the glory that went with it. On August 10th, Shea, Strano, William Gardella, and John Falotico put 35 Pine Street under surveillance. The number of cops grew as everyone wanted to be in on the arrest. Just after 7.30 p.m., a heavy-set Caucasian male walked out of the apartment building and seemed to head toward Berkowitz's Ford Galaxy. The police started to close in on him. Falotico pulled his gun and stopped the man. David, stay where you are he warned him. Are you the police? The man wanted to know. Yes, don't move your hands. It was not David Berkowitz, but Craig Glassman, the part-time deputy sheriff who realized that these men surrounding him were not the Yonkers police, but New York City's finest. Glassman figured out fast that Berkowitz was a suspect in the Son of Sam murders. Several hours later, another figure emerged from the apartment building, carrying a paper bag. The man was heavy with dark hair, and he walked slowly toward the Ford Galaxy. This time, the police waited for the man to get into the car and put the paper bag on the passenger seat. Let's go, Falatico yelled, and the officers advanced. The man inside did not see the approaching figures. Gardella came from the rear of the car and put the barrel of his gun against the man's head. Freeze, he yelled. Police! The man inside the car turned around and smiled idiotically at them. Falotico gave him very explicit instructions to slowly get out of the car and put his hands up on the roof. The man obeyed, still smiling. Now that I've got you, 
Falatico said. What have I got? You know, the man said politely. No, I don't. You tell me. Still smiling his moronic smile, he answered, I'm Sam, David Berkowitz. The day of Berkowitz's arrest, Sergeant Joseph Coffey was called in to interview him. Calmly and candidly, David told him about each of the shootings. When the interview was over, there was no doubt that Berkowitz was the son of Sam. The details that he supplied about each assault were bits of information that only the killer would know. At the end of each session, Berkowitz politely wished him, Good night. Coffee was amazed by Berkowitz. When I first walked into that room, I was full of rage, but after talking to him, I felt sorry for him. That man is a fucking vegetable. Who was David Berkowitz anyways, and how did he become the son of Sam? While David did not start his life under the most auspicious circumstances, he grew up in a middle-class family with doting adoptive parents who showered him with gifts and attention. His real mother, Betty Broder, grew up in the Bedford-Stuyvesant section of Brooklyn. Her family was poor, and she had to struggle to survive during the Depression. Her Jewish family opposed her marriage to Tony Falco, who was Italian and a Gentile. The two of them scraped some money together to start a fish market in 1939. Then, Betty had a daughter, Rosalind. After that, things did not go well with Falco's marriage, and Tony left her for another woman. The fish market went bust, and Betty had to raise Rosalind by herself. The loneliness of being a single parent was relieved when she began an affair with a married man named Joseph Kleinman. But things went awry when she became pregnant. Kleinman refused to pay any child support and vowed to leave her unless she gave up the baby. Even before David was born on June 1, 1953, she had arranged for his adoption. Her sadness at giving up her child was mitigated somewhat by the knowledge that a good Jewish couple was ready to adopt her son. With her newborn gone, Betty resumed her affair with Kleinman until he died of cancer in 1965. David was lucky to be adopted by Nat and Pearl Berkowitz, a childless couple who were devoted to their new son. He had a normal childhood in the Bronx with no clear warning signs of what was yet to come. Perhaps the most significant factor in his life was that he was a loner. His parents weren't particularly socially oriented, and neither was David. He was always big for his age, and always felt different and less attractive than his peers. All through his youth, he was uncomfortable with other people. He did have one sport, baseball, which he played well. His neighbors remember him as a nice-looking boy, but with a violent streak, a bully who assaulted neighborhood kids for no apparent reason. He was hyperactive and very difficult for Pearl and Nat to control. David did not realize that Pearl had suffered from breast cancer when he was born. When it recurred in 1965 and again in 1967, David was shocked. Nat hadn't kept his adopted son very well informed about the prognosis, and David was therefore shocked to see how badly Pearl dissipated from the chemotherapy and the illness itself. He was devastated when Pearl died in the fall of 1967. When David was in his early teens, his parents tried to flee their changing neighborhood to the middle-class safety of the enormous, sprawling, high-rise development of Co-op City. By the time their apartment was ready, Pearl had died. David and his father lived in the new apartment, alone. David began to deteriorate after Pearl's death. 
his great average nosedived. His faith in God was shaken. He began to imagine that her death was a part of some plan to destroy him. He became more and more introverted. In 1971, Nat remarried a woman that did not get along with David. The couple moved to a Florida retirement community without him, leaving him to drift, absent of a purpose or a goal. He just existed until his fantasy life had become stronger than his real life. He did have one relationship with a girl named Iris Gerhard. The relationship was more fantasy on Berkowitz's part. Iris considered him only a friend. He attended a few classes at Bronx Community College, more to appease Nat than anything else. David joined the Army in the summer of 1971 and stayed there for three years. He was an excellent marksman, particularly proficient with rifles. During his time in the Army, he briefly converted from Judaism to the Baptist faith, but then lost interest. At one point, David found his biological mother, Betty Falco. She and her daughter, Rosalind, did everything they could to make David feel welcome in their family. For a while, it worked, and David seemed happy in their company, but eventually, he drifted away from them too, making excuses for not coming to visit. Anger and frustration with women, coupled with a bizarre fantasy life, started him down the road to violence when he got out of the army in 1974. The only consummated sexual experience with a woman that he had ever had was with a prostitute in Korea. He contracted a venereal disease as a souvenir. Even before the murders began, David had set some 1,488 fires in the city of New York and kept a diary of each one. He was acting out a control fantasy. Robert Ressler, in his book, Whoever Fights Monsters, explains, Most arsonists like the feeling that they are responsible for the excitement and violence of fire. With the simple act of lighting matches, they control events in society that are not normally controlled. They orchestrate the fire, the screaming arrival and deployment of the fire trucks and firefighters, the gathering crowds, the destruction of property, and sometimes of people. Klausner points out in his book that David's state of mind in November was very bleak when he wrote to his father in Florida. It's cold and gloomy here in New York, but that's okay because the weather fits my mood. Gloomy. Dad, the world is getting dark now. I can feel it more and more. The people, they're developing a hatred for me. You wouldn't believe how much some people hate me. Many of them want to kill me. I don't even know these people, but still they hate me. Most of them are young. I walk down the street and they spit and kick at me. The girls call me ugly and they bother me the most. The guys just laugh. Anyhow, things will soon change for the better. The letter was a real cry for help. After writing the letter, he locked himself in his tiny apartment for almost a month, leaving only for food. He wrote wacky things on the walls with a marker. In this hole lives the wicked king. Kill for my master. I turn children into killers. Around Christmas of 1975, David later claimed to psychiatrists that he was giving in to the demons with the hopes that they would stop tormenting him if he did what they asked. On Christmas Eve, he was in a crisis mentally and emotionally. In the early evening, he took a large hunting knife and drove around for hours looking for a young female victim. The demons would let him know when he found the right woman. That night, 
He had returned to Co-op City, where he and Nat had shared the solitary apartment after Pearl's death. A woman was leaving a grocery store. Suddenly, David's demons ordered him to kill her. She has to be sacrificed, they told him. He plunged the hunting knife into her back once and then again. He was shocked at her reaction. I stabbed her, and she didn't do anything. She just turned and looked at me. Then she began to scream, and he ran away. Later, police tried unsuccessfully to verify this story. Then he saw another young woman. He hid his knife and attacked her from behind, stabbing her in the head. Fifteen-year-old Michelle Foreman was seriously wounded, but she fought back. Her screaming scared David off, and she was able to make it to one of the apartment buildings for help. She had six wounds from the hunting knife. The attack on Michelle pacified David's demons for the time being. He was relaxed and went out for a burger and fries. After the two Christmas Eve attacks, David went back to his security guard job at IBI Security. He moved from his tiny Bronx apartment in January to a two-family home in Yonkers owned by Jack and Nan Cassara. He wanted a two-year lease and paid a $200 security deposit. Cassara's German Shepherd was a noisy dog and howled frequently. The neighborhood dogs howled back. In David's diseased mind, demons lived within the dogs and their howling was the way they ordered David to go hunting for blood, the blood of pretty young women. Berkowitz was driven to the edge. I'd come home to Coligny Avenue like at 6.30 in the morning. It would begin then, the howling. On my days off, I heard it all night too. It made me scream. I used to scream out begging for the noise to stop. It never did. The demons never stopped. I couldn't sleep. I had no strength to fight. I could barely drive. Coming home from work one night, I almost killed myself in the car. I needed to sleep. The demons wouldn't give me any peace. After three months, he moved out of the Casara's house and went into an apartment house at 35 Pine Street in Yonkers, never asking for his security deposit back. The Casaras had taken on a frightening role in David's family life. When I moved in, the Casaras seemed very nice and quiet, but they tricked me. They lied. I thought they were members of the human race. They weren't. Suddenly the Casaras began to show up with the demons. They began to howl and cry out, blood and death. They called out the names of the masters, the blood monster, John Wheaties, General Jack Cosmo. As David's fantasies developed, Cassara became General Jack Cosmo, commander-in-chief of the Devil Dogs roaming the streets of New York. The demons had a constant need for blood, which David helped replenish with his murderous assaults. David's apartment on Pine Street also had its dogs, Sam Carr's Black Labrador, for example. David tried to kill the demon lurking in Harvey with a Molotov cocktail, but it fizzled. Finally, he shot Harvey with a gun. Sam Carr, in David's elaborate delusion, was the host of a powerful demon named Sam who worked for General Jack Cosmo. When David called himself the son of Sam, it was the demon living in Sam Carr to which he referred. David warned people that they should take him seriously. This Sam and his demons have been responsible for a lot of killing. Unfortunately, 
In David's scheme of things, only God could destroy Sam at Armageddon. At various times in David's mind, Sam was the devil. The day before he murdered Donna Loria, David quit his job as a nighttime security guard and went to work as a taxi driver. He claims that he didn't want to kill Donna and her friend Jody, but the demons forced him to shoot. But once it was done, he felt pleasure, exhaustion from doing a job well. He was pleased, pleased enough to promise Donna to him as a bride. Sam had led David to believe that Donna would someday rise from the dead to join him. David was classified by the defense psychiatrists as a paranoid schizophrenic. They believed that David's difficulties relating to people drove him further into isolation. The isolation was a fertile ground for wild fantasies. Eventually, the fantasies crowded out reality, and David lived in a world populated by the demons his mind had created. As his state of mind deteriorated, tension grew and was only released when he successfully attacked someone. For a brief time, the assaults relieved the tensions, but inevitably, the tensions began to increase again, and the cycle repeated itself. When he was arrested, David remained calm and smiling. It appeared as though he was relieved at being caught. Perhaps he thought that finally, in jail, the demon dogs would stop howling for blood. However, according to Dr. David Abramson, the prosecution's forensic psychiatrist, while the defendant shows paranoid traits, they do not interfere with his fitness to stand trial. The defendant is as normal as anyone else, maybe a little neurotic. Ultimately, it did not matter because David Berkowitz pleaded guilty. He was sentenced to 365 years in jail. In 1979, Robert Ressler, the FBI veteran, interviewed Berkowitz in Attica Prison three times. Berkowitz had been allowed to keep a scrapbook he had compiled of all the newspaper stories about the murders. He used these scrapbooks to keep his fantasies alive. Ressler made it clear that he didn't buy the demon dog story one bit, and eventually he was able to get the truth out of Berkowitz. The demon story was to protect him when and if he was caught so that he could try to convince the authorities he was insane. He admitted to Ressler that the reason for shooting women was out of resentment toward his own mother and because of his inability to establish good relationships with women. He would become sexually aroused in the stalking and shooting of women and would masturbate after it was over. He also admitted to Ressler that stalking women had become a nightly adventure for him. If he didn't find a victim, he would go back to the scenes of his earlier murders and try to recall them. It was an erotic experience for him to see the remains of bloodstains on the ground, a police chalk marker too. Seated in his car, he would often contemplate these grisly mementos and masturbate. So, murderers do return to the scene of the crime, not out of guilt, but because they want to revive the memories of their crimes for sexual pleasure. He wanted to go to the funerals of his victims, but was afraid that the police would become suspicious. However, he did hang around diners near the police stations, hoping to overhear policemen talking about his crimes. He also tried unsuccessfully to find the graves of his victims. Like many serial killers, he nourished his sick ego from the newspaper attention he received for his crimes. He got the idea of sending the letter to Jimmy Breslin from a book on Jack the Ripper. Ressler found out that after the press started calling him Son of Sam, he adopted the moniker as his own 
and even fashioning a logo for it. This story is repeated time after time in every city experiencing the attacks of a serial killer. The demands of the citizens to know what is happening is balanced against the reality that feeding these demands for information virtually ensures that the killer will keep on killing. Legitimate police work is seriously hampered by a deluge of bogus tips from well-meaning citizens. The only party that benefits from this common problem is the media. On July 9, 2002, David Berkowitz's first parole hearing was conducted at the place of Berkowitz's incarceration, Sullivan Correctional Facility, in Fallsburg, New York. David Berkowitz, 49, attended this hearing, but had chosen not to attend the hearing that had been scheduled a month earlier. Commissioner Irene Platt asked him why he didn't attend in June, but did in July. I had a lot of anxiety, Berkowitz answered, and I thought it would be best for the families that I did not come at all, and I, after a lot of soul-searching and a lot of praying, I just decided it would be best to just come and face you and apologize. I am not seeking parole. I don't feel that I deserve parole. Commissioner Platt asked him why he felt that he didn't deserve parole. Berkowitz responded, Well, for the crimes that were committed and people that are suffering today because of my actions, I know they have a lot of pain and hurt that will probably never go away. I wish I could go back and change the past. I can't, so I have to... I came to terms with this and realized that I'm here in prison. Commissioner Platt stated that she wanted to continue with the hearing unless he had an objection. Berkowitz had mixed feelings. He was very concerned about the media. I was hoping that after this was over with, after the 25-year mark, and the media says all that they can possibly say, that everybody, myself, my family, the victims' families, can all get on with their lives. Commissioner Platt asked him what attracted you to their whereabouts and your need to kill them. Berkowitz replied, Ma'am, I'm sorry. I don't know. I don't understand what happened. It was a nightmare. I was tormented in my mind and in my spirit. My life was out of control at that time, and I have nothing but regret for what happened. What was this torment? She probed. It was just my mind was not focused right. I thought I was a soldier for the devil and all kinds of crazy things. I had things like the satanic Bible that I was reading. I just got stupid ideas out of it. I'm not pushing the blame on anything. I take full responsibility, but I just... At the time, things got twisted. At the end of the short hearing, Commissioner Platt suggested that Berkowitz had not developed much of an understanding of the motivations of his crimes. Berkowitz answered, Ma'am, in all honesty, I really haven't. I still struggle with coming to grips with the things of the past. There are still issues that I have to deal with. I'm not there yet. Not surprisingly, parole was formally denied. Although the panel recognized his good behavior, his activities in helping other inmates, and his role as a chaplain's clerk, his completion of a two-year degree from the State University, and his successful completion of other prison rehabilitation programs, and his expression of remorse for his crimes, the extraordinary pain, suffering, and anger that you have inflicted on the families and the community at large continues, 
Discretionary release at this time would depreciate the seriousness of these atrocious crimes and diminish respect for the law. Berkowitz's first years in prison were filled with conflict. He was a disciplinary problem. However, after his conversion to Christianity, his attitude changed dramatically and the disciplinary problems went away. Many people are skeptical of the dramatic embrace of religion, but in the final analysis, it really doesn't matter whether people believe Berkowitz or not. Berkowitz is smart enough to understand that he is never getting out of prison, and he has learned to adjust to the realities of that life. Is his new Christian persona really a hoax to deceive the parole board into someday granting him parole? I don't think so, because he knows that parole is beyond his reach. His religious beliefs have provided him a spiritually comforting and socially acceptable lifestyle in an environment where few comforts are normally found. While Berkowitz was not technically insane when he committed murder, he was a very troubled and emotionally unstable personality, off the hallucinogenic drugs, and, possibly, taking more therapeutic medications for his mental state, he is trying to overcome the freakish image that he had created for himself as a young man. Berkowitz is a long way from normal, and always has been. It appears as though he understands this fact and is trying to do the best he can to straighten himself out. He has the rest of his life to work on it, in prison, where he realizes that he definitely belongs. On David Berkowitz's official homepage, the convicted serial killer explains how he has been locked up for the past two decades. My criminal case, Berkowitz says, is well known and was called the Son of Sam's shootings. Eleven years prior to penning those opening web lines, Berkowitz adds, while he was living in a cold and lonely prison cell, God grabbed hold of his life and set him on the righteous path. He says his story, or rather, his path towards righteousness, is an example of hope. This letter to his readers was written in 1999. Today, Son of Sam claims to be free from the confines of prison. He claims Jesus Christ has led him to the light of a new way. He calls his webpage Forgiven for Life. This story is about the real Son of Sam, not the facade Mr. Berkowitz wishes to display in his web writings. It is about the person who murdered six people and tormented and terrorized a city. As for prison life, Berkowitz says his days and nights behind bars are a constant struggle and that he's had his share of problems, hassles, and fights. He claims another inmate cut his throat once, and he almost died. Yet all through this, and I did not realize it until later, God has his loving hands on me, he writes. Further along on his website, Berkowitz says that while he was reading Psalm 34 one night, he began to pour out his heart to God. He said that this moment of clarity, when God entered his soul, took place in 1987. He gives no specific date, just the year. Everything seemed to hit me at once, Berkowitz claims. The guilt from what I did, the disgust at what I had become. And then, he says, he got down on his knees and began to cry out to Jesus Christ. This revelation by Berkowitz is a complete fabrication. Pay close attention to the date he gives us, 1987, as you listen to this story you'll have a hard time believing God's hands were resting on the shoulders of Berkowitz as he wrote them.